Good to, good to see you this morning. Uh, my name's Paul. If you don't know me, I'm one of the leaders here. It's my job to take us through next message in our Nehemiah series. But before I do that, let me just again highlight what Dan and Ali are stepping into. I'm really thankful. I've spent a bit of time with these guys just thinking through and hearing the kind of the vision, the heart, what it is that they want to do with it. Um, where it is that they want to take this kind of ministry, and I'm really excited by these guys. They just have a real desire and a heart for cross-cultural missions. So if you want to know more, have a chat with them as well, and just they'll explain some of their heart and what's going on um, this morning. But again, come to that meeting. Let's, let's, let's pray for what's going on there. So we're in Nehemiah 2. Um, some of you are, are new, some of you are visiting. So let me catch us up to, to where we are. It's not too bad a time because we've only been in it for two messages so far. So we're not too far in, so it shouldn't be too hard to catch up. But the year is around 500 BC. So about two and a half thousand years ago. And God's people, Israel, they're in a really difficult situation. So they, they've been taken into exile all across the Persian Empire. So all across the Persian Empire here. And so Jerusalem, which is the home of God's people here, is in a terrible state. Uh, people have been scattered, the, the temple and the walls, they've all been destroyed. And there's groups of exiles, these are the people who've been taken by the foreign powers of the day. They've been going back to rebuild parts of Jerusalem. And they've done it in three waves. If you want to know more about what's gone on before, read the book of Ezra this week. It'll, it'll help you out in that. At this first wave, they go back with a guy called Zerubbabel. And they're sent by a king called Cyrus. And they go back to rebuild the temple at the place of, of worship. And then the second way you go back, they go back with Ezra, who's a priest, and he teaches them God's word, what it means to be God's people. He's kind of rebuilding the people, the community. But neither of these things end well. And that's where Nehemiah steps in. And the book, as we find it, the book of Nehemiah, it opens up in Susa. Susa is the, the winter resident of the king of Persia, and he's a, a guy called Artaxerxes. And it's here, over in Susa, that we meet Nehemiah. Nehemiah means God, God's comfort. There's a little hints of what's happening in this story through Nehemiah's name even. And what happens as he's over here in Susa is that a relative of, of, Nehemiah, of Nehemiah, a guy called Hanani, he comes with a, a group of Jews, a delegation of, of Jews to Susa where Nehemiah is. And he tells Nehemiah that Jerusalem's in a really bad state. The people are in trouble, the walls are broken, the gates have been destroyed. There is a great shame and this shame is important because Jerusalem is where God's name was. It's where God's honor is kind of centered on in, in many ways. And this opening sets the direction for the whole book. Because the big question hanging over all of this is, how is this going to get resolved? This is a terrible situation. And we see it through Nehemiah because this massively burdens him. So he weeps, he confesses sin, he fasts, and he prays. He pleads with God to act, to show mercy according to his promises. And last week we ended with this really intriguing sentence, didn't we? I was cupbearer to the king. You see, the cupbearer was someone who would be very, very close to the king. He would be trusted by the king. He would be like a confidant. And so he would see the king. He would be in close proximity to the king every day. He'd be even influential in, in determining who came in to have access to the king. When you hear from history that Artaxerxes, his father's Xerxes, was actually murdered in his bedroom by a courier. Artaxerxes knew the danger that was all around him. Nehemiah had to be someone that he trusted. And in this sentence, I was cupbearer to the king. And all that comes with it, we see that there's hope from God right at the start here. God's already placed Nehemiah in this position. God puts his people in the right place at the right time to do his work. 
God had already prepared in advance the work for Nehemiah to do. So let's pray and let's see what happens through our section. Father, I thank you so much that we get to gather here this morning to sing these songs, to sing how great you are. Father, that is a privilege and a blessing. Help us never to lose sight of that, that we get to sing that you are great, that we get to know that you are great, that we get to experience your greatness. Father, as we sit here this morning in this small church in the Outside of Liverpool, Father, I just pray that you would lift our eyes, our hearts, our minds to see how wonderful, how great you are. Father, I pray like the psalmist that you would bless us, that our delight would be in your law, that, that we would be like trees planted by streams of water, yielding their fruit in season. Father, I just pray for that this morning. Pour living water into our souls this morning. Remind us of your goodness and your grace as we look at this account in Nehemiah. Amen. Amen. So, Nehemiah 2, what's going to happen? We're going to work, the, the way that, that, that it's going to work through, it works it through in four scenes. So we're going to see four different setups, four different scenes where we're going to see what's happening through chapter 2. And the first scene that we have is called the palace. It's a scene in the palace, verse 1 to 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. You see, Nehemiah, it's been four months, around four months since he's heard about Jerusalem, what's been going on. That burden that, that has been on his heart, it hasn't gone away. It seems like he hasn't yet spoken about it. It seems like he's spending the time planning. Maybe he's trying to work out when it's best to, to, to actually step into action. Maybe he's a little bit frightened. But the inner strain of this burden that he's feeling is starting to come out physically. And he stood before the most powerful man in the world and he's looking sad. And this is bad. This is really bad for Nehemiah because it's, it's really important for the cupbearer to the king to have the right appearance. Any change in Nehemiah's appearance or demeanor would raise suspicions instantly. So Nehemiah, we read that he would never have looked sad. He had to have this neutral face or a certain face in front of the king. But this burden's too much for him. And this, physically, he's showing his unhappiness. He's showing his turmoil. And the king notices. And this makes Nehemiah very scared because of the possibility of the reaction. There's other people here. The king has to be strong. And he asked Nehemiah, okay, what's going on? There's no hiding now. So speaking with respect, Nehemiah tells him the issue, verse 3, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? That's interesting as Nehemiah responds. He doesn't actually name Jerusalem. Maybe he's trying to save some face for the king who's engaged with Jerusalem in the past in different ways. But what he does do, he calls it the city of his father's graves. Nehemiah is being very clever here. What, he, what he's actually doing in the ancient world, in Artaxerxes' worldview, the dead would have been revered, they would have been worshipped. And it was thought that, that, that to, it would bring harm to, to the people of cities if they didn't bury their dead properly. And so what he's doing, Nehemiah is making his appeal through the king's worldview. That's what he's doing here. And the king responds, verse 4, Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Nehemiah, he's been praying for four months. And in this, this moment is unbelievably high pressure. 
This is like the turning point effect. But he knows that, that what he says next is going to have a massive impact on how this whole thing is going to move forward. This is a hugely pressured moment. So what does he do? He turns in prayer straight away. Shoots up a prayer to the God of heaven. It's almost like this might be the king of Persia, but he gets to speak to the king of heaven. That's where the true power lies. And Nehemiah responds, verse 5, I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Nehemiah has not been wasting time. He's not been wasting these past four months. He's not been passive in them. He's actually been planning. That's what seems to come out here. He knows what he wants. He knows what it's going to take. He knows what he needs. And he basically says to the king, I want to go back and rebuild the city. And then the king replies, we see, in verse 6, with a sideways glance to his queen. The queen would have been quite important in the Persian court. They read that, that, that women in the Persian court had a lot of influence. And he says this, the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. He's basically saying, okay, how long is it going to be? What does Nehemiah do? He responds with a time. He's already, he's already worked out how long it's going to take. If you have to follow the book on, he comes back in 12 years' time. Whether or not that's the time he's given him here, we don't know, but it seems like it's a long task. He hasn't come empty-handed. Good leaders come not just with problems, but they come with solutions, and the king agrees. And so Nehemiah then makes his, his next bold request. He doesn't stop there. He steps in, verse 7. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. See, beyond the river, this is all the area around Judah. Nehemiah, he knew what had happened in the past. Okay, he knows the events that have taken place in, in Ezra. So, so he knows all the opposition that Zerubbabel and, and, and Ezra faced. And he's been in the king's court, hearing all of these things. He knows the, the political plays in the area, the power dynamics. So what he does, he says, look, I'm going to need some letters to show your approval. He gets security from the king of Persia. And he asks for some wood. Wood to rebuild the walls, wood to rebuild the gates from the king, king's forest, and wood to make himself a house to live in. And the king just gives him everything he asked for. And this section closes with Nehemiah's words. And the king granted me what I asked. Why? Why did the king give him everything that he asked? For the good hand of my God was upon me. Do you see that? Nehemiah knows exactly who he trusts. Nehemiah shows where the power is. Nehemiah actually makes it very clear whose hand is over all of this. Even though the king is granting this request, Nehemiah knew that it was God's hand, God's power. That phrase, the good hand of God, that happens all the way through Ezra and Nehemiah. Both are recognizing that God is working in and through them, and that without that, it will be pointless. And then the chapter shifts to our second scene. The second scene is beyond the river, verse 9 to 10. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with, with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. 
Nehemiah travels 800 miles from Susa to Jerusalem, and he goes straight to the leaders in the area. He gives them the letters. And he's not playing games because he arrives with this huge military escort. He's got loads of soldiers. He's got, got loads of horses. He's got loads of warriors with him. And he's showing publicly, visibly, Artaxerxes is with me. Let me through. He's pushing the opposition to one side. And then we meet these other two characters, enemies of God and enemies of God's work. These kind of, they seem to be dark, shadowy characters at this point. Sambalat. He's um, from Samaria, and he, he kind of seems to have a governing role. It becomes apparent a bit later on that he, he takes over the role of the whole of, governing the whole of Samaria. And then we've got Tobiah. That servant means he's an Ammonite official. So he's got authority over the Ammonite territory. These are big influential characters in the area. And they hear about this move from Nehemiah, and they're really unhappy with it. They're threatened by Nehemiah's power and Nehemiah's influence in the area. Even though these investments... There's a lot of investment going into the area. It would have been good for them. The narrator here draws our attention to something far deeper going on. They have a dislike for God's people. It was someone seeking the welfare of God's people that displeased them. And then these bad guys, they're kind of left in the shadows for a moment because then the attention shifts to our third scene, which is Jerusalem by night, verse 11 to 16. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. But there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Okay, so Nehemiah pushes on through beyond the river to Jerusalem. He's laser focused on his task. And what he needs to do, he needs to assess the damage. He needs to see the walls. He needs to see the gate. He needs to see what's going on. And he spends, we're told here, he spends three days in Jerusalem. He's keeping his cards very close to his chest. He didn't, he didn't want the enemies of God's people to know what he'd been planning. He had ideas that he was going to rebuild the walls and the gates, but he doesn't yet want the people to get excited without these plans being completed. And he also didn't know who he was going to trust as he was walking through. So he didn't yet know the people. So what he's doing, he's also surveying the people. He's spending time with the people as well as the walls. He's surveying the people. And he goes around the city to look at it on a horse. The damage is so bad. The rubble is so loose that the animal can't get through. It can't get its hooves onto the, the floor and can't work its way through. So he can only make a partial circuit. And having seen it firsthand, he's convinced of the need. And so he steps into the next phase of his plan. And that's where we get to our fourth scene, where he gathers the people by the broken walls. Verse 17 to 18. And I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build so they strengthened their hands for the good work. Nehemiah is not only a strong leader, he's very politically skillful. He knows when to speak. He knows when not to speak. 
He knows when the, the right moment has arrived and he takes full advantage here. And he does it amongst the walls and he points them to the walls. Look, look at the mess we're in. He's saying, look at the mess we're in. Our cities in ruins, our gates are destroyed. We are vulnerable. We are insecure. And the people, they feel it. They know it. But he says, look, there's also derision. That's a mockery. They're laughing at us. God and his people are being laughed at. God is being dishonored. And then he gives them some, some comfort to help them to be bold. He tells them how God's helped them. He will have told them about his position that he had in the, the king's court. He'll have told them about the request and all that was granted to him, the letters and all that material that was given to him. He says, look how God's made this happen. Look what God's done. And Nehemiah, he draws them together. Nehemiah is like a, it seems like a really good people gatherer. He stands with the people and he's not saying, you, you guys, you're suffering shame. You're suffering derision. You do it. This is your mess. I'm off back to Susa. He's not saying that. But he's using a language like we, us, are. Not just in Jerusalem with what's going on and he's putting himself with the people, but also all the blessing that he's received, the platform he's had. He said, that's ours. That's how God is using me and us. And he says to them, come, let us build the walls. Come, let us build the walls. It's a rally cry. This is a call to, to battle effectively. And look at the people's response. They're like, yes. Let us rise up and build. Let's do it. Let's go. They've gone from being a people of shame with the rubble of their lives just all around them. No hope, no purpose to a people of hope a people of purpose, a people with a shared task, a people with a clear direction. And as this is bubbling away and God's people are being stirred to action and in a real excitement and unity, we get verse 19. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? God's enemy appear again. They come out of the, the shadows, Sanballat, Tobiah, and this new guy called Geshem. And they laugh at them. They are mocking God's people publicly. Key people, influential people are mocking God's people. And they despise them. That means they hated them for what they were doing. They hated God's people. And then what they do, they threaten them. Are you going against the king? God's enemies have done this before. If you flick back to Ezra, Ezra this week, you will see this is a, a tactic that has been used before with great success. They think the only way to stop this is to get rid of the king's protection. So they're trying to get the imperial power on their side. They're trying to use the power structures of the day. They are trying to manipulate power structures, social power structures, political power structures to stop God's work and to stop God's people doing God's work. This is the first big threat to Nehemiah's leadership. How is he actually going to respond to this? Verse 20. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is a brilliant response. I love this. This gives me comfort and I wasn't even there. This gives me boldness and strength. What a great response. See, what he doesn't do, he doesn't go to the imperial documents, does he? He doesn't make an appeal to the king of Persia. He doesn't allow himself to be dragged into senseless arguments. 
He doesn't allow the lies that are being told about them to take over the conversation or the time. He engages on a religious level. This is God's work. This is God's work and God will make us prosper. We are doing and will do God's work. No imperial power structure, no lie, no threat, no pressure will stop us doing God's work. As for you, you have no past, no present, no future in Jerusalem. God is advancing his kingdom through his people. That's what's going on here. See, this chapter shows us how God works in building up his kingdom. And let me just draw a few things that we can learn from the, the setting as it is here in Nehemiah's day. First of all, God works through prayer. We've seen that right through the first two chapters. Revivals or movements of God's Holy Spirit, they're always preceded by the prayer of God's people, always. Verse 12, what does Nehemiah say? He says, well, God's put it in his heart. How did God put this burden in Nehemiah's heart? Through his prayer, through his fasting, through his seeking God in light of God's promises in his word. That's what's going on here. Nehemiah is spending serious time, serious effort, serious energy with God before this moment. He's kind of built up between that first moment and this moment, a lifestyle of prayer and dependency on God. It's woven into his life. And yes, he also does it during these moments, verse 4. Kind of arrow prayer, as people call them. It, it shoots a prayer up to God in that moment. God helps his, his children in these key moments. He does. He's a father who cares. So God works through prayer. God also works through the orchestration and events and circumstances of the world. See, Nehemiah, he was a cupbearer. He was in that position. That is a unique position. So Nehemiah had been given a platform. Nehemiah had been given a, an area of influence. And he saw that area of influence, he saw that platform as being given to him by God. Not as his by right or what he had earned, but as being given to him by God. And he used it well. He used his platform and his influence for God's glory. Verse 10, verse 18, verse 20, what does he do? He recognizes God's good hand was upon me. God's good hand was upon me. This is God's doing. Everything is in light of God's doing for Nehemiah. And God provides the protection for his people. He provides the material for his people in what he calls his children to do. So God works through prayer. He, he works through the events of, of history. And God works through his people stepping forward in faith through risk. So I think this really jumps off the page for me with Nehemiah. God had placed this burden deep down in Nehemiah's heart to do God's work. But it took conviction and courage to step forward in faith. He didn't stop on, just pause on the burden. He didn't stop a prayer, but he actually stepped forward. He stepped out in faith. Faith. He took action off the back of his prayer and the burden that God had given to him. And we also see it not just in Nehemiah, but we see it in the community of God's people in verse 18. God's people rally to God's cause. They do. You see it. God's people rally to God's cause. There is a unity of purpose that God gives his people. So God works through prayer. He works through events. And he works through his people stepping forward. But we also see that God often works through opposition, struggle, and suffering. See, ever since the Garden of Eden, there has been a battle between the serpent and the seed of the woman. And we see God's people constantly facing opposition. People trying to destroy the work of God. And in Nehemiah, what we see is God's appointed man stepping forward. 
He faces mockery. He faces um, derision. The power structures of the world are used and manipulated to stop God's people advancing. But Nehemiah still steps forward into this task. And as we look through Nehemiah, I believe that our eyes are to be drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ. He who came from the throne room of heaven into the brokenness, the mess, the rubble of this messed up, broken world. He was laser focused to do the Father's will. In fact, he actually said it was his food in John's gospel to do the Father's will. He was all about obedience to the Father. And what's really interesting, if you just take any, any time, reading any of those gospels, you will see that the more Jesus walked in obedience to the God, God's will through his life, to the Father's will through his life, the greater the intensity of opposition became. It didn't reduce, it grew and increased. And then right before he went off to die in John 13, he's speaking to his disciples and he says, they hated me, they're gonna hate you. They're gonna hate you. And the power structures of Jesus' day, all of them, the religious ones, the, the Roman ones, they all took a role in his suffering and his death. Jesus Christ did not hold back. He knew what was gonna happen and he steps forward. He sets his face like flint to Jerusalem, to the task that he'd been given by the Father because it was the Father's will for him to walk the path of the cross. Jesus Christ entered glory through suffering and his victory that he achieved on the cross over sin, death, and the devil came at great cost. We can't ignore that. Jesus Christ gave his life so that we could share in his victory. He draws us into relationship with the Father through his work on the cross and his life in the resurrection. And he draws us into relationship with God. He gathers us and then he sends us out together. You see, folks, the kingdom of God, it advances through his people. Who is that? Us. His people all over the world, yes, but right here, right now, in this place, you guys, me, and you, us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is, the Bible is clear, he is ruling and reigning over the whole of the universe. That is a fact. He's ruling and reigning over the whole of the universe. But the kingdom of God is where that rule and reign is acknowledged. And that's in us, Holy Spirit-filled believers. God advancing his kingdom work through us. So we folks are to build. This is a call to us here today to build. We are the gathered people of God, gathered by the rubble, gathered by the walls down, by the, gathered by the gates, given a rally cry. Let's rise, let's rise, let's rise and build. That's a call. So how do we do that? Just four things as I bring this to a close that we can draw from Nehemiah, which I think will help all of us step forward here today. One, through knowing God's word, through prayer and through fasting. We had a lot of talk about God's will. A lot of talk about God's will. God's will is laid on our hearts through prayer and relationship with him, in and through his word. Prayer and fasting and spending time in his word is how God places his burdens within us. It's how God deepens the love that is within us for him and our affection for others. And it's yes, it's, it's prayer in the moments. And I think that often we'll probably all of us on one level or, or, or another, if we're all in trouble, if we're all feeling a bit scared, if we're all not sure where the situation's going, we'll very quickly go to a prayer. Help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. We're good at that. That's where we go to. That's a good thing. And we should do that. 
But I think more importantly than that, is for, to, for us to build a, a habit, a lifestyle, starting right now if this isn't something that you're walking in, a lifestyle of prayerful dependence, seeking God, having lives directed by God. If you need help doing that, we're all in gospel communities. If you're not in a gospel community, come and join one. That's where we flourish through the week as God's people with other people of God. Come and join us. Well, maybe talk about this in your gospel communities this week. What might this look like? What might it look for you guys to fast and pray with a specific focus for something? Would that be something that you could do together? Secondly, through action. Nehemiah spotted what, what needed doing. He processed it well, that's really clear. He thought it through, but he didn't just park it there, he acted. That's kind of what this whole chapter is about, is Nehemiah stepping into this, stepping forward, and he keeps stepping forward to the king, to the opponents, to the people, to rallying people. It's all about him stepping forward. He stepped into God's purposes and plans. My question is, do you, do you keep stopping short on that action phase? Are you holding back? Anxiety and fear has become such a, a buzzword, but also, I believe, an accepted an accepted reality in the Christian church that we don't actually fight against it and walk through it. We're not to say that anxiety and fear goes what we are to do. Jesus says, don't be anxious, leave it with me, walk through it in obedience to him. Do not let fear and anxiety stop you walking in God's purposes for you. So how is God calling you to step forward in the advance of the kingdom? What does that look like for you? That might be, in light of what we've just heard before from Dan and Ali, it might be that God's placed a burden on you, your heart for a people group or a place. It might be that God's placed a burden on your heart for a, an area of the city that you want to love and move towards. It might be that God has placed a burden on your heart for a work colleague or a family member or a friend. It might be that God has placed a burden on your heart for someone in the church that you really want to love and care for, that you want to pray for, that you want to bless. It might be that God's placed a burden on in your heart to serve in a specific way. There's so many ways that we can step into this, but if there's something holding you back, now is the time, today is the time in prayer and dependence to step forward. And thirdly, through healthy gospel reflection, that's how God advances his kingdom. What did Nehemiah do? He, he went and assessed Jerusalem. He went and assessed the walls. He went and assessed where the danger was, where the potential danger was. So let me ask you the question, where are the walls down? Where are the walls down for you guys? Where are the gates open to danger? And that could be individual. So I could be speaking to you guys as individuals working this out in your, your own way. Could be things like the eye. What are you looking at? What are you seeing? What are you letting in? It could be through the ear. It could be conversations. It could be gossip. It could be negative talk of other people. It could be an indulgence in distorted desires. It could be an indulgence in distorted thinking. What is it for you? It could be the whole church. Elders, we, we have seven elders here in Cornerstone Church Liverpool, and we meet and we reflect and we talk about and pray about the church. What might we be missing? Where are the walls and gates potentially down? What do we need to look for and pray for? Gospel community leaders in here, there are many of you sat here in front of me. What's that for your gospel community? I, had a, I looked through, we did this series 10 years ago. 
And I looked at my gospel community questions, and one of the things we were looking at that we needed to pray about was hospitality, care, fellowship, and communication. We were asking people to pray about that in our gospel communities. What does that look like in your gospel community? Ministry team leaders, not just the guys who lead the ministry, but leading the teams within the ministry. Where's the, where's the gaps? And let's take it one step further. If you're married here today, where are the walls down? Where are the gates open? Have you had this conversation, husband, wife? What's going on in your marriage? How are you? Where might you be spiritually struggling? Where do you need to depend on each other? Have that conversation. Families with children. Where is it? Where are your kids spiritually? What might that look like for your kids spiritually? Friendships as you look around the church and you see the friends that you have. Who do you need to move towards? Being a good church member here at Cornerstone Church Liverpool. Please do reflect, but reflect in a healthy gospel-centered way. How are things? What are the potential dangers or damages, damage or dangers that you need to be aware of? What needs to be rebuilt in God's strength? And then act through prayer, act through prayer. And folks, can I just say that to reflect in a gospel-centered way, it means knowing, it, it means doing it in the freedom of knowing that you're not God. You don't fix everything. You don't fix the church. You don't fix your gospel community. You don't fix your ministry team. You don't fix your marriage. It is God who is God. And that's liberating for us. So we're able to seek forgiveness from God and others to confess, to ask for God's help, to draw in others to help around us. Say, help me. Help me rebuild this. This is happening. Help me. This is happening. Help me. And if you're here today and you have no relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't know who he is or you've not heard of him before. You've just walked away and you just turned your back on him. And if you're here today amongst the rubble that your life has just crumbled all around you and you're sat amongst the rubble just going, what is happening? Let me tell you today, folks, there is always hope. There is always hope. Turn to Jesus. He is the face of hope. There is one who is greater than Nehemiah who can save you, who can not only save you, but rebuild your life. A Savior who tells us he can comfort and strengthen the weariest of souls. Turn to Jesus today. He offers life and hope and rest and peace. He gives purpose and he gives direction. And lastly, as we rise and build, we will face opposition. We will. We have experienced it as a church. Many of you in this room have experienced opposition in all of your lives, workplaces, communities, friendships, families. You know you will face opposition. There are people who just do not want God's people to flourish. The story hasn't changed in that sense. There are people who don't want God's church to be healthy. There are people who hate the message. Why? Because they hate Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. And like Nehemiah, we can say that I am under God he is the one who has authority. I am doing his work. And we can say you have no right to distort, destabilize. You have no claim on truth to those who seek to challenge the truth of God's word. God's will and God's work will move forward through us, the church. But also folks through, in that room there, you've got about 30 odd kids, all under the age of 11. The world that they are entering into seems to be getting harder to live as a Christian. There's gonna be pressure and oppression. Are we praying for those guys? 
Are we seeking to open up the right risk for those guys? Not protecting them from everything, but allowing them to walk in faith with us so we can guide them through lives, through their lives together. It is through our GCs. So let's pray, folks, as a church for opportunities. Let's pray for a burden. Let's pray for a boldness. Let's pray for courage and let's pray for strength. Because the reality is every single person sat in front of me here today has a part to play. Ephesians 2 says this. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Nehemiah uniquely situated in a place, in a time with the relationships he had, the workplace he had, the influence he had, and the character he had. God had prepared the work for him to do. And in prayer and dependence on God, he stepped forward. In the same way, folks, God has prepared works for you to do. He has, each and every one of you has a work to do from God that only you can do. So you have been uniquely made in this place, in this time, with your relationships, your network of relationships, your workplace influence, your character. This is your time to step forward. Cornerstone Church, Liverpool, this is our time to step forward, not to be comfortable, but to step forward in the cause of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be uncomfortable. We all have our part to play and we can do it together for his glory and the good of his people. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. Father, I thank you that you call us out of darkness into your marvelous light, that you make us a people of light, a people called to display your light. Father, we are and we feel a vulnerable people. We feel weak, we can feel insecure, we can feel fearful, we can feel anxious, we can worry about the time ahead. We can worry about the people around us, we can worry about the opposition that may come our way. We can worry about the risks of living for you. Father, forgive us. Father, help us to see the areas of our lives that we need to confess. Father, help us to spend our days in humble, prayerful dependence upon you. Would you place a burden in our hearts? Would you place a burden in the heart of every single person here to live for you, to love you? Father, I pray for that. Father, I pray that you would do such a work in our hearts today that we would be a people who seek to move out for your glory and the good of the building of your kingdom. Father, show us how we be made. Show us the areas of influence. Show us the places that you call us into. By your spirit who lives within us, give us that boldness that we see in the book of Acts where they just burst out proclaiming the gospel through persecution. Give us that boldness. I pray for the kids who are growing up into this world. Father, help us, I pray, to shepherd them well, to guide them well, and to launch them into this world, Father, as your ambassadors, as your messengers. Father, help us now as we come to, to take this bread and this wine, Father, I pray that you would help us to see the wonderful truth of how much we are loved, of how much we are forgiven of what you've done through us, through Jesus, for us, through Jesus. Father, remind us of our adoption as your children. Remind us of the future that we have. Remind us of the family that you've put us amongst. Build us, I pray. Spare us on, I pray, in your strength. Weak, vulnerable people. Do a work in us, I ask. Amen. As the bread and the wine go around, if you're not a believer here today, 
We ask that you let this pass. The Bible says that this is for those who, who believe. But if you want to pray and talk to someone, please come and speak to us. There'll be people at the back, people at the front you can pray with. And as God's people, as we take this, can I encourage you? Let's be bold in our prayers as we take this. Is the Lord Jesus Christ was broken so that we could be put back together again, a broken, messed up, sinful people. As we take this, a sign of him being broken, let's have the freedom to confess and ask for help. Ask the freedom, ask for God's help in surveying the walls and the gates of your life. Do it, ask him. If there's something you need to do right now, do it. If there's someone you need to go and apologize to, if there's someone you want to pray for, do it now, today. Husbands, wives, pray together. Families, pray together. Gospel communities, pray together. We are a people gathered around a meal. It's a wonderful meal that is a snapshot, a glimpse of that eternal truth of heaven. Let's do this together.